Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night, whatever time it is where you are listening to us. This is Let's Pod This. Hello, my name is Andy Moore, and I'm joined by our other two lovely co-hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello. Hello, Andy. Scott Melson, welcome to the pod. What's up, man? The pod we're at every Friday afternoon about this time. And this week, uh, we've got a number of things to talk about. We've got we've got the ever-present COVID-19 pandemic. We've got people breaking out of the Oklahoma County Jail. We've got uh, gaming compacts that have renewed. We've got uh, a the runoff election gets nearer and nearer, and we've got some debates that'll be happening um, about that. And that's just what I have on my list. Well, let's just dive in, shall we, and start. This will be like a popcorn session where we're just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Schools are opening and then closing and then reopening and maybe receiving some PPE. And and Congress be- is not coming back right now. So their August recess is on pause for the members of the House of Representatives. How did that I miss that? Sh- that's that's a miss that. huge deal, by the way. Like they don't cancel the August recess for nothing. They don't. Like- so this is serious. This is, I mean, this is, this is Speaker Pelosi, like, uh, throwing down the gauntlet and be like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna blame this on, on us, right? That you can't get your shit together. I'm gonna um, need you to come in on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> hi. Bill Lundberg here. It's a full day today. I'm gonna need not you a to half come day. In. Not a half day or anything like that. Thanks. And, and, and the general public would say to members of Congress, what would you say you do here? Exactly. So, well, let's start there. We don't talk about national, federal level stuff, but this is these are unprecedented times, as everyone says all the time. So, yeah, it's exceedingly rare that they would not come home to the district for their August um, recess. Why, why is that? Why do you think they're not coming? Well, the reason is... There's a lot of need going on, and we're in a, as people love to say, as a colloquialism, uh, unprecedented time. Um, so we have a lot of need for working Americans who are struggling to make ends meet right now. We have businesses that don't know whether they can keep their doors open. And if you drive around, regardless of where you live, where you're listening from, you can drive around a different part of your community and see businesses close down and, and shut down because they weren't able to survive during the economic downturn. Mm-hmm. And so there's just so much need and so many clarifications that need to happen um, that Congress just has a lot of work to do. And it's essential that the House and the Senate and then, of course, the majority minority parties within each of the bodies can come together on an agreeing um, relief legislation so that way um, they can provide what's needed for local governments and state governments. They can provide um, adequate funding for relief programs like our unemployment or SNAP. 
um, and figure out ways that they can help boost the economy in a time where we could potentially see another downturn. Yeah, it's super like, it's like super paradoxical. Um, Ooh. I mean, well, because on the one hand, right, like on the one hand, you would ex- you would expect that like this is this is a lot of action by the government, right? This is a lot of action by the government that is going to spend a lot of money to like do a lot of stuff, right? So when you phrase that, you would think, all right, um, Democrats probably going to be on more on board with this. Republicans probably going to be like on the like less is more from a government standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Just as their overarching political philosophy. However, we're talking about doing a lot of stuff to, among other things, as Bailey mentioned, try and prop up the economy, which just had its worst quarter in like history, contracting almost 40% uh, in the most recent quarter, and try and like prop up the economy, prop up unemployment, try and like make sure that people are like working. You would think that in an election year, when the Senate is in play, and the Republicans control the White House, that making sure the economy is stable would be their number one priority. And so from a political perspective, you would expect that this is something Republicans desperately want to do and that Democrats would be like, um, so, yeah, why are we going to throw you a like rescue, like throw, throw you a rescue line, setting aside the fact that throwing a rescue line is like the right thing to do, like for the American people that they represent. Right. Um, so it's interesting because this is a situation where you see the parties acting, I think, what is consistent with their ideology but in ways that is antithetical to what would be the best electoral politics for each of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's interesting to see that play out. Uh, I, I think. Um, yeah. Well, and it's, it's a little bit nuts to me, right? Like it's an election year. Clearly the best thing that any politician can do right now is throw money at the American people. I mean, now- is it an election year, Andy, if we're moving the election? Well, that is uh, some strongly strongly worded responses to the president's tweet about moving the election. He Just to be clear, he does not at all have the authority to do that. Congress told him that. The, the election um, committee told him that. Or, uh, yeah, the FEC. And even um, the Federalist Society, which is a pretty conservative society, called for his impeachment over and that tweet. Him, and called him a fascist. Yeah, that's right. Called him a fascist. I, that was... Um, I mean, they. I don't. I don't really know if I can say that they are known for their measured language because I haven't read enough of their stuff. But they, they don't go around calling presidents fascists very often, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that was a very strongly worded statement no, yesterday. No, they. No, they do not. Anyway, some just further evidence that uh, I think the president's coalition is starting to creak and crack in in more ways and we have kind of said that you know this might happen as we get further into the fall but yeah uh to go back to the money thing it is it boggles the mind in some ways that that they are not more eager to throw money at the problem however i mean at some point it's there's diminishing returns and it is I think the even Americans who don't follow politics particularly closely would recognize that like we can't keep just throwing money at this indefinitely because we got to pay for it sometime. I mean, I would 
I would say that one, I think there are some economists that are a lot smarter than I am who would actually disagree with you there. But but it is also interesting to me. This I'm thinking about. This was well before coronavirus. This was uh, I want to say in the fall of last year. I was listening to an interview with George Will um, uh, mm-hmm. by Ezra Klein. George Will, um, most people may know. If if not, George Will is a very I certainly I think well known, and I would say pretty well respected um, conservative like author and thinker and, and and writer. And he said even that he would say. Like he would say, as as a as an ardent kind of classical conservative, the one thing that government does really really well is give people money, right? He doesn't trust like he doesn't trust government like programs necessarily. Like he doesn't trust like government you know architecture to like you know the bureaucracy, all those sorts of things. But the one thing that the feds do like really well is give people money, mm-hmm. and. Like that's essentially right now, like that's what we need. And if you look at the most successful parts of the CARES Act, which is, you know, one of the first kind of steps that Congress took to address the coronavirus, I would say arguably the most successful parts of that were probably um, both the the uh, $1,200 stimulus checks, which they're looking to try and repeat, but as well the extension of unemployment insurance, which just gave people money to pay their bills and put that money back into the economy and without that you would have had a worse contraction than we than we saw and you know right now interest rates are at historic lows um taxes are arguably historically low and so yeah we have to pay it back sometime but man if you're if you're going to run up a credit card bill it seems like this is the time yeah yeah well, I think, I mean, this will be of keen interest to all Americans, right? And particularly as they, I think it's broadly expected that they will approve additional stimulus money to come to the people, right? I, the thing I've seen most often is like another $1,200 per person payment plus, you know, extras for kids and all that. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. I know there's a bunch of folks that desperately need it. And as we move into August, things are going to get worse before they get better, Right. Um, even, uh, was it Jill Castilla that tweeted the other day that a, there's been much talk about a like U shaped or V shaped recovery to the economy. And they were talking about a K shaped recovery, which means like it goes down, it goes back up, but on the way back up, there's a path that goes back down. And she, she pointed out, uh, this was not in the, you know, uh, economics textbooks, K shaped recovery was not part of the plan. And so it'll be, I'm interesting. I'm super nervous, to be honest, like to just be real with you guys. Like I am increasingly nervous about the economic effects of this that we haven't yet seen because they're going to be, they're going to be coming and it's going to be hitting harder and harder as we get closer to the holidays, which is not good for lots of people. Well, and it's been nearly a century since we've seen anything that hit the world, but particularly hit the United States as harshly as it has in every single state, right? Mm -hmm. And so every, because there are governments within this government that are trying to figure it all out on how to to keep services going that Americans depend on every day. And so this will be a unique time to see um, the strength and resilience of our economic system. Um, but one thing that people 
forget that when Congress passes the relief bill, they're also sending money down to state and local government. Right. So like Oklahoma received about a billion dollars of CARES Act funds. Different counties and cities have received allotments of CARES Act funds because they're taking in fewer tax dollars, which means like, how do we pay fire and police? And how do we pay, you know, our trash man to, to pick up, you know, um, uh, and, and do these services, right? And so um, it's gonna be a really trying time for the country and it's all going to depend on what decisions our leaders make today and ensuring that the bounce back won't feel as Yeah, and you know, Bailey, you mentioned like sending money to state and local governments. I mean, I think that's something that people would almost universally agree is needed. But that's one of the things that they're arguing about that, that the R's seem like they don't want to do. They want less aid for state and local governments. And one, that's devastating, I think, from a policy standpoint. But two, I mean, that's one of the things that like we had Leader Eccles on, uh, right, in, in March, I think, or in April, talking about what this was going to look like. And I mean, he basically, I mean, he said on the show, he was like, I don't think that's going to be a problem because, you know, what you're going to see is like, you know, we're we're going to see the Fed step in, and there's going to be like a massive bailout to uh, bailout to the states that's going to keep these budget shortfalls from being overwhelming. Um, so I don't I don't know that uh, I don't know that Leader Eccles listens to the show, but uh, if he does, I would say he should call his congressperson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he needs to call his representative and his senator because right now um, it's his party that says, "Nah, nah, bro, we're good. We don't we don't want to do that." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll be watching that closely. Uh, since we're talking about COVID, let's like dive into that. So, you know, another 747 cases diagnosed today. Um, we had which, an uptick in deaths. Yeah, had an uptick in deaths, which we expected, right? Like we've seen a rise in cases for the last couple of weeks. And so deaths tend to be lagging even behind those. Oh, dude, they're plateaued. They haven't been going up. <laughs> we've seen a plateau. We're in the middle of a four-week plateau, Andy. We have a different... I mean, I'm looking at the chart, and that is not the case. That is a plateau. It is a plateau of between 700 and 1,200 cases a day. <laughs> Which is... It's either this or twice this. That's a big That's a big difference. That's right? what he said, though. Well, and for, and for our listeners who don't understand why Scott is being funny about plateaus, <laughs> uh, the governor made a statement in one of the updates related to COVID saying that we've had a plateau. Um, even though um, many people are looking at the charts and the data points and seeing that that he sees it as um, a plateau. Plateaus don't have points. Did he say four weeks or four days? No, he said it's been a four-week plateau. I think he said between 700 and 1,100 cases. And so it's like, it's either this, or like he said, this, or two-thirds more than this. I I would say the last like week or so, it's... (laughs) Right. I would say for the last week or so, it's about the same. But it is not a not a four-week plateau by any means. Uh, it's a pretty steady increase over that period. In fact, several reporters showed graphs, you know, showed the data that the state has provided that that's the case. It is increasing. The average is increasing. Um, and it's, it, I, I'm, my guess is, and I don't want to, I'm not going to speak for the governor, but my hunch is he is trying to not use um, inflammatory language, right? Like there's plenty of folks that are on the, 
using language that is on the opposite end of the spectrum from what he is. But I do think that everyone would be better served by some language in the middle that just accurately portrays Where what's going on. Right. If, if any of our intrepid local journalists listen to the show, if someone would like to ask the governor at his next press conference, ask him this. If the governor was climbing an 11,000-foot mountain and he got to 7,000 feet, would he consider himself to have reached the plateau? <laughs> and if he went up to 7,000 feet or up to 11,000 feet and then came back down to 7,000, would he consider himself to have crossed a plateau? I, or would he have crossed a peak? Well, so you know, I will say, I don't, it's not like it's clear that we've reached a peak yet because cases are still climbing. So, I mean, it's just, I, I, I see what you're saying, Andy. Like, I think you are right. I think there is a, I think there is a part of the government that he's trying to be more measured, right? He's trying right. not to be alarmist, but I don't give him as much credit for that. And here's the reason why, right? One, we know from this week that, that there is messaging coming out of the White House that is on two fronts. The messaging that's coming out on Twitter and on the Sunday shows and on talk radio and on cable news is that like, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. The message that's coming out of the White House in terms of actual guidance to states is that you should be like looking at your spikes. And if you're having more than, what is it, uh, 10 cases per 100,000 or 100 cases per 100,000, mm-hmm. if you're over that threshold, you should be considering shutting down bars, putting restaurants at traffic at 25% capacity, and instituting universal masking, among other protocols, none of which Oklahoma is, is doing, even though we're well over that threshold, right? Right. And so, and, and, that, and also to your point, even the subcommittee led by, um, Representative Clyburn, who is my favorite member of the U.S. House, said that we weren't doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah, and asked for the governor to send some documentation as to like why, right? And like Mayor Bynum in Tulsa has said, like we haven't heard anything about these recommendations from the state. Mayor Holt in Oklahoma City has said we haven't heard anything about these recommendations from the White House. The state hasn't given those to us. and and like this was all made public from some really really good investigative reporting so on the one hand the the administration is basically saying we're doing what the president says not what the president's team of experts say we should do number one the cdc has guidance that says even if you have recovered from coronavirus or recently had coronavirus you should be wearing a mask when you're in public particularly when you're in the company of others yesterday his press conference there were 40 people in the room and there was one person without a mask it was the governor who we all know recently had coronavirus and when asked about it he said what you talking about i don't need to wear a mask i just i've already i've already had the rona i've had it i'm done i don't need to wear a mask masking for me right and so maybe part of it is that he's trying not to be alarmist but part of it is that i don't know what his reasons are for like like other than just politics, like that he doesn't want to be seen wearing a mask. He doesn't want to be seen acting like he's afraid of the virus. He doesn't want to be seen um, as stifling the economy. And like, I think that's where like part of his language is he's describing things in a way that's not true because it benefits. He's using that as justification for not taking these other steps. He can't say that we're in a speak or a pike or uh, a spike or an uptick and then and turn around and say, but it's okay. We don't have to do all the stuff that everybody says we ought to be doing, right? You can only say that if your cases are are steady. And one last thing, and then I'll shut up and let you guys talk for a minute. But like he said that we would need to have now, a, a couple of weeks ago, he said we would need to have 7,000 new cases a day um, for 14 days straight to be putting any kind of strain on our ICU or hospital capacity. 
Yesterday, he said we would need 2,500 cases for 14 days straight. And that if we followed that, we would have 1,200 patients in ICU beds across the state. And only at that point, we still wouldn't consider universal masking, but we would consider closing down bars and cutting restaurant capacity. I just want to point out that in like normal pre-COVID times, Oklahoma's ICU bed availability is about 1,000 beds. We have just under 1,000 beds a day. <clears throat> like, or not, not a day. We have 1,000 ICU beds that can be used across the state of Oklahoma. So what the governor is saying, he's not going to consider doing anything we're not doing now until we are at 200 ICU beds over our, like, normal capacity. We're going to get 200 beds into our, like, emergency surge plan before he'll consider doing anything. And that is, I think, inarguably terrible public policy. I, Yes. I mean, I, I agree. Like, I, you know, I'm someone who tries to give folks the benefit of the doubt, and that includes the governor in most cases. But we're five months into this, and I, I'm concerned that there are aspects of the gravity of the situation and just the reality of what it takes these institutions to ramp up when necessary. And the fact that we, you know, we've heard really this week has been highlighted that the testing numbers we get every day are delayed, right? So that we know there's a lag. So like when you think about the whole disease process, someone is infected on day zero, they display symptoms on day four or five. They don't really feel sick until day seven, eight, nine. They get, maybe they realize they need to get tested. Then they get tested. They have to, in many cases, wait a week or two weeks for results. And there are some that have been waiting three. Right. And, um, and yes, there are some that have been waiting like a day. It depends where you go and all that. So this is the hard part is that out of the, you know, 700 or a thousand cases, we results, we get per day. You have to go back and see when they, you can dig in the data and find out when they presented with symptoms and all of that. But it's not like that's everyone who tested yesterday because they started feeling sick yesterday. This is folks from the last few weeks. And in many cases from day four to day, you know, 20, right? Like they were infectious and they could have, and in many cases it did spread it. And then if we, you know, they don't go to the hospital until day 14 or something in there, maybe that's when they get tested. Who knows? They're in the hospital for a couple of days, then they're in the ICU, then we get those numbers, and then they die, you know, a week or two or three later. And and so someone that dies indicates like that they got infected a month ago or more. I mean, it, you know, it obviously varies, but as a rule of thumb, a month. And if we are making decisions about bed availability and all of that on a certain level, well, like at whatever day we make that decision. Like, let's say the governor says, okay, whoop, we're at that level. We need to enact this emergency surge plan, DEFCON 2, right now. Well, like, it's too late, right? Like, that's supposed to be a preventative mm -hmm. measure to avoid getting to that point. Can I bridge something, too, that both of you guys are saying that I think it's important as well? We're making an assumption, and we as in people who live in America that <laughs> <laughs> if you have contracted coronavirus and you may present, you know, antibodies, then you're good to go. You're in the clear. You can never get affected again as if it's like chicken pox, right? Mm -hmm. um, when even the science isn't clear, 
about what happens, what are the implications if you've had COVID and can you contract it? There's so many comparisons about, oh, this is just a flu. If it's just like a flu, then people can get the flu annually, right? <laughs> I don't want people with a flu going to work or restaurants or bars either. And so it's, it's even just scary that like people have the idea that like, oh, you know, I already had it, so I'm good. And then potentially like if they don't get checked and then they're interacting with other people and continuing the behaviors that they have, not wearing masks or whatever, that could essentially perpetuate the issue at hand. And so if we have the, the highest leader in our state having the mentality of I've already had it, I'm not gonna wear this, then what does that mean for the rest of the 4 million folks who live in the state who are seeing that as signaling that if I've had coronavirus and I'm good, I can just walk around without a mask. Right. I mean, 100, 100%, Bailey, you are, you are very, you're on the nose that like, we don't know what immunity to this looks like, right? We don't know if it's antibody mediated. We don't know if it's T cell mediated and we're not going to get into what that means today, but just suffice it to say it's, it's complicated and it can look a lot of different ways. So we don't know what uh, immunity means. We don't know how strong it is. We don't know how long it lasts. And by the way, even if that's all true, you know, like there's, there's this old, there's an old saying in, in medicine that like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Like if you could, it is much, much better if I like as a primary care doctor can help someone not become diabetic. That is way better for them than letting them get diabetes and treating their diabetes. It's also way better for like the system in terms of like cost to, right? Like it's literally not better. not let people get the ICU beds. Right. It's literally better for everyone. And we yeah. have this mindset that like, oh, well, as long as we're managing it okay, then it doesn't matter. We don't need to prevent any cases. Like the goal was never to have zero cases. Yes. In fact, the goal, like in a perfect world, I think all of us would agree that we would have zero cases of coronavirus. Now, I think we would also all acknowledge that that's not realistic, but we want that number to be as low as possible. This is why, you know, Senator McCourtney, who's a friend of the show, uh, I like I like Senator a lot, and he he made some good points um, on on Twitter this week, but he was talking about why a universal masking mandate, he like, I don't think it's necessary. He says, kids in Oklahoma has zero cases. Why should they have to wear a mask? And I was like, so they stay at zero cases, <laughs> right? We the had reason- a 13-year-old from cash die from COVID. Right, like the reason to have them wear a mask is your that's the that's the perfect time to start wearing a mask is when you have no cases, right? So that you stay at no cases. When I don't know how many people live in Kenton, but you don't want to wait till half of them have coronavirus before you start t- start taking preventative measures, right? Look at our look at our uh, our residential care units that are scattered around the state, right? You think that these units where like some of our elderly and most vulnerable people live, you think they're gonna you think they're gonna wait? until half their patients, half their residents have coronavirus before they start locking down? No. Every single one of those facilities is on lockdown to try and make sure that no one gets it, right? It's not apples to apples, but like this idea that we don't need to take preventative measures because it's not bad yet, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Like it's not bad yet. So we should start taking preventative measures, (laughs) right? Like... So a few weeks ago, even though it feels like eight years ago in coronavirus time, the Trump rally took place in Tulsa. 
And one of the high political figures that were in attendance was former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain. And so he was there hanging out with President Trump. He was near Governor Sid and others who were um, attending that rally. Uh, just two days ago, it was announced um, that he passed away from the complications he had uh, when he contracted COVID-19. And so we found out maybe it was a few days, a couple of days after the Trump rally happened that he tested positive for COVID. And so I think it was a shock to the country to hear that he had passed away from those complications, especially with the incident that happened here in our backyard. And so um, I think that's just a powerful and a tragic occurrence that happened. So definitely prayers for his family in this difficult season, but also hopefully a wake up call that we really got to do more on the public health front to that COVID. Yeah. I mean, certainly one of the, you know, certainly one of the highest profile folks um, to contract the virus and, and unfortunately not survive. Um, and, you know, when, when Mr. Kane ran for president, I disagreed, I think with probably every aspect of his platform um, for, for the most part. Um, I can't, I can't remember any parts that I agreed with. The thing I remember most about him was his nine, nine, nine tax plan. Um, but, a good plan. but you know, he's, he's one of those guys that like, um, I was just reading a little bit about his career and that way that he like um, climbed the corporate ladder, became the CEO of Godfather's Pizza, I guess, especially in the 80s, was doing um, a lot of work with with kids in the inner city. Like um, the man really did some stuff and and left his left his mark um, here on a lot of people in a lot of ways and 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 did a lot of good. And we should mourn the loss of we should mourn the loss of anyone. Um for sure, but I think especially someone who, you know, brought brought a lot to the table and and from something that should be preventable, not every time, but but a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, this will prevent people from calling it a hoax because that is something that he was quoted as referring to coronavirus as is just overblown and not a big deal, and and we're seeing another incident where somebody's life is so in that vein let's pivot to a different topic let's talk about just i don't know why this feels lighter maybe because COVID is such a heavy topic but this morning two people escaped from the oklahoma county jail and they escaped from the 12th floor by busting out a window and lowering what appears to be like a bunch of sheets tied together it was right? some movie shit did you guys see this this is and like according to brianna bailey with the frontier, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Really, with Oklahoma County Jail. <laughs> it's a—I mean, it's an intimidating building. I didn't know those windows were even big enough that a human, an adult, could fit out of it. Like I really, they're very narrow windows. I think at the top of the cell, and so the fact that two of them got out, uh, it says just before seven o'clock, the police department notified jail staff that they had detained. One of the guys who was walking with a leg injury, because he, they only had uh, eight stories of sheets, which is like eighty feet. That's not insignificant. Um, and so 
He got down to the fourth floor and then had to drop the other 40 feet. So presumably he injured himself because that's a hell of a drop. That is. And so they found one guy just before 7 o'clock and they had found the other guy at like 5.30. They, a video of him and they the U.S. Marshals Service captured him at Southwest 37th and Will Rogers. The, so the other guy fell and jumped the 40 feet and did not have any leg injuries? I get Maybe he, maybe the rope broke. I don't know how it is, happened, but it just says... Is Jedi? <laughs> like, right, yeah. Tom Cruise. T- tuck and roll, tuck and roll. Um, <laughs> so they took the guy to the hospital, but they said they um, got him while he was trying to steal the truck, which in that case, like maybe he just barely got away, but this feels like a weird movie. You're exactly right, Scott. This this is not relevant to Oklahoma politics. It just was like one. It's like a car chase on TV. I mean, it is relevant to Oklahoma politics because it illustrates that for a number of reasons, um, safety like safety of the prisoners and their well being like probably number one, but also number two. The idea of a jail is that you don't want people to get out of it, and since people can get out of this one, um, it just underscores the fact that we need a new one. Um, so I would say it in fact is local politics. Have either of you guys ever been in county? Have you guys ever been inside the county jail? Just I've been in the basement just to get my fingerprints done for my counseling license. I had friends who have been in the county jail, and I'm seeing stories. I mean, and, and this is like during protests and different things. Yeah. And I mean, I'm hearing the horror stories of people mm-hmm. having bed bug bites all mm-hmm. over their bodies. And um, I mean, I've somebody I've... said that there was a person who had water running that was black. In one of their faucets, and I mean, there's just mm. all kinds of forced. I I myself have never been uh, in, incarcerated there, but um, I've had family that has been incarcerated there that I have visited on a number of occasions, and it is horrifying. It yeah. is a it is a horrifying place. So I you know I I can't blame anybody who would tie eight bed sheets together and try to get the hell out. Um, um, we need a new jail. Yeah. I've I've been in the in the courthouse. There's a floor that's like the jail floor, right? So it's where they hold people that are in custody that have hearings and stuff. And I used to do mental health evaluations there. And I did go to to the county jail proper a couple of times for that. This is you know way back and when I was in graduate school the first time, and it was bad back then. And Scott, didn't we like a year or two ago? do an episode about the jail when that was being discussed and yeah part of flooding yeah that's right well and so part of the deal with the oklahoma county jail is that when it was built the company that built it was basically going state to state you know visiting counties and and lobbying and convincing people you guys need a new jail here we've got these plans we'll build it for you it's great you know it will be way cheaper than everybody else because we kind of build the same one and they built I don't know, like a dozen, give or take, jails across like the southern part of the U.S. And almost all of them had problems. They've sued the company. Texas sued the company. The t- company's bankrupt and gone. And from my friends that have um, been deputies in the past have said, oh, yeah, though they came in and like sold us snake oil in the form of a county jail. And now we'll, we're left holding the bag on maintenance and upkeep. And it's impossible like we because the building was built improperly yes. like it was like it's built like the building is terrible this is like those roofing companies that come to town after a hailstorm right like by night yeah. that is like that's what this these people were yeah. and i think one thing that makes it even 
more concerning about this time than before is how much development is happening downtown. Um, 10, 20 years ago, downtown Oklahoma City was mainly industrial buildings, right? I mean, a couple of restaurants here and there, and mm -hmm. then the rest of it were like buildings where after five people are driving to suburbia to go home. And now it's become more of a residential area. There's more parks and sightseeing and things for people to do more things in downtown Oklahoma City. And the jail is right in the middle of all of that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that could be a, a, a public safety issue if you have folks on the run and you have a festival right there across the street, right? <laughs> Yeah. If people well, I mean, could there's just... just a lot of different reasons. I mean, and especially, of course, the the humane treatment of people issue is awfully, I mean, obviously, number one, mm -hmm. um, but also for the safety of um, residents who live in the area as well, that we have to, to make sure that the jail is, is a safe place. Yeah. So related to criminal justice as an issue, uh, earlier this week, state question 805 was, I guess maybe just yesterday, that is earlier this week, um, but they were notified that they have qualified for placement on the 2020 ballot. So we will have two state questions on the 2020 ballot. State question 805, which is a criminal justice reform measure, and then state question 814, which um, we'll talk about, I'm sure, between now and the election, but that's the one where the legislature basically wants to appropriate TSET money. They want to have access to the Tobacco Endowment Settlement Trust money so they can put it in general revenue instead of having it be constitutionally protected where it is. So 805, this is a criminal justice reform measure that would end the use of sentence enhancements for repeat Nonviolent offenders. Now, now that's a, a lot of big words strung together. And so basically it's the gist of it is people who committed repeat nonviolent crimes. So let's say you, you stole a bunch of pencils. I'm just making up something. I don't know. Um, and you had several charges. The, the way that it has worked in the past is that multiple charges like had a multiplier effect where your punishment then like got increased over time. And so if you had, let's say possession of marijuana is probably a better example. And you had several kind of low level crimes after, you know, you have so many, they would throw the book at you and, and it would enhance your sentence, you know, like, Oh, you've done this three times. Like we're going to give you 10 years and, or 15 years or 30 years or whatever it is. And, that has resulted in a lot of folks sitting in jail or prison for a long time for not a lot of crime. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. In a simplified way. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think it's a fair assessment and it's like, it's a lot of folks sitting in prison for a long time for offenses, offenses, particularly drug related offenses that may not have actually hurt or injured anyone. Right. 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 Like, now, that doesn't mean that just because something doesn't hurt or injure another person, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be, like, illegal or wrong or whatever. Like, I'm not trying to make the sense that, like, you know, we don't have, like, a, a judicial or penal system. But, like, 
who should spend 30 years in prison for like buying some weed, right? Just because they bought weed three times, right? right? Or like, I'm just like, the wrong time to buy weed, <laughs> right? And particularly right. when you know, I don't, and Bailey, this is something I, I, I don't, I, I just don't have the data. So, Bailey or Andy, either one of you, if you, if you know, I would expect that if you looked at the application of sentence enhancements, you would find that like so many other aspects of the criminal justice system, they're disproportionately applied to people of color. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like it's not the like white guy from Edmond who's like selling cocaine who gets sentence enhancements applied. It's like the black or brown person who, it, you know, is maybe trying to do this to feed their family who gets sentence enhancements applied. So and they don't have good legal representation to, right. to help dispute or fight that because they can't yeah. afford it. So, I mean, there's just so many levels of why, how, how policies can be racist without having racist language embedded into the law if application of it is racist. Yeah, exactly right. I, I'm sure between now and the election, we'll have someone from the 805 campaign on to kind of tell us more about it. Um, I can certainly reach out. And But this is a pretty broad bipartisan coalition that supports this, right? You've got former Speaker Chris Steele, who's a Republican, who's kind of been a champion of criminal justice reform. You've got uh, Gene Rainbolt. I saw him in the photo, right? You've got um, you've got a lot of folks from both sides of the aisle that care about this. Um, they've even got some some DAs, not most DAs, but some DAs, some district attorneys that have been supportive of this. Um, and so, this will be on the November third ballot. Um, very interesting. They the proponents say it would save the state upwards of $190 million over the next 10 years. So that's roughly $20 million a year, right? $19 million a year. If you want Seems to, like we could use that. We could definitely use that. Although, you know, I'm, I'm sure I haven't seen it, but I'm sure that would be attacked by the other side because, you know, we expected all these savings from State Question 780, and that money would then be used under State Question 781 to fund these treatment facilities and treatment programs and that is not proven to be the case right yes <laughs> affirmative yeah that is that is correct two other things that i thought we would talk about um one we can is somewhat briefly and it's related to criminal justice reform so now it seems like a good time and that's that yesterday uh i think it was yesterday or today rather abruptly the executive director of the pardon and parole board resigned citing threats from a fellow board member um so steve bickley is the former executive director's name well he's still director until august 7th um he just said he's resigned effective august 7th and gave no other comment but there's another member i guess of the pardon and parole board named alan mccall who's retired judge who sent a um, what Mr. Bickley felt was a uh, accusatory and aggressive email and said that he was going to, McCall said he was going to move for Bickley's termination and and ask him to be um, before the multi-county grand jury to present evidence of multiple violations of the law. And so Bickley just resigned. And, you know, there's been some notes from, in the social media from like Adam Locke and some other members saying that they supported him. 
Um, but this is a big shakeup for, you know, I, I think a public board that has gotten an unusual amount of attention over the last couple of years because they've been, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but they have they have moved to move the needle in, in some significant ways and notable ways. Yeah. When it comes to um, pardon and parole in the state, because we've moved like molasses very, very slowly in the past when it comes to giving people that opportunity, um, especially in some areas of nonviolent crimes. And they move more rapidly than we've seen probably in, in I would argue, in state history, <laughs> just yeah. within those few years that um, Binkley was in, in this position. Yeah, yeah, he just got appointed last year, I think. So um, so I don't I don't know much about the Pardon Parole Board. Oh, I feel like I should. So I know there's board members who are appointed by the governor, I think. Um, but I don't know if the executive director is someone that is hired. I assume they're hired. Um, and it's not just like, it's not the same as being like the board chair, right? I don't know. I'm very, now this, I'm going to look into this. Uh, maybe I'll report back next week. This is very interesting because I feel like this is a, a, you know, a board of regular citizens, which I'm usually for, uh, that has a... But it's a powerful board. It has a lot of right, right. authority. Yeah, has a lot of authority and a direct impact on a number of people's lives and like in a very personal and, and deep way. So interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll research more and report back next week. And then the last item I had for this week is uh, the gaming compacts. The federal judge ruled that the gaming compacts that have been there for the last 15 years do indeed automatically renew as far as they're concerned. And so maybe um, this issue has been so complicated and there's been so many lawsuits, some of which are still pending, it may merit a quick synopsis. So all the there's a bunch of tribes that have Con, compacts with the state to do tribal gaming, right? To operate casinos and whatever else. And um, they usually have like what, like a fifteen-year length. Fifteen-year, yes, that's correct. And there's a clause in there that says that if these basically renew every fifteen years, as long as certain conditions are met. One of the conditions is which be, being that a state agency has to like take some sort of action. The action is defined. Um, and when all this started, the, the tribes contended that by licensing gaming uh, at Remington Park, that action had been fulfilled, and the state said that right. it hadn't. That, I, think, I think that's an important piece here is that they renew. They don't just, they don't just go on forever. But if certain conditions have been met, they automatically renew. The tribe said those conditions have been met. The state said, no, they haven't. Right. Basically, it's like if the state does anything to indicate the, like these things renew, then that action is, in effect, a renewal. And uh, and so they renewed or they allowed Remington Park and then another similar like horse track in Tulsa to keep operating. They said, OK, you, know, you guys can keep going, but everything else is, you know, does not renew. And basically, the ruling from this judge said, no, no, by doing that, you definitely fulfilled that piece of the compact, thus they renew. So this comes on the heels of two other very important rulings. One is the 
McGirt case, which we discussed in depth a few weeks ago, right, that reaffirms tribal territory going, you know, for the how it was established 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And so that's a enormous deal for particularly for the five tribes, right, uh, because they have the biggest areas. Um, and then also the state Supreme Court ruled against the governor in and I guess for the legislature, members of the legislature, in the case of, or in the, uh, the, the question about the new compacts that were signed with the Oto-Missouri tribe and the Comanche tribe. And basically the, the Supreme Court said, those compacts are null and void. The And this is all weird, and I don't, we need to have Brian back on here. About, there's a question about who has the authority to enter a contract. Too, right into the compact. Right, so, because it it says that the governor has the authority to negotiate them, but presumably they have to be entered into with the legislature. Right. And, and, signs. Also, and you can't negotiate things that haven't already been enacted by the legislature, and because that was the deal with uh, that was the deal with uh, the other the sports the, book, right? Right, sports, yeah, sports like class gaming. three gaming. Well, and so you know, so there's the compacts with the Oto Missouri and the Comanche tribe, and then there's two other compacts with two other tribes and that lawsuit is still pending. They're all basically the same thing as far as I understand. And it basically would be a, the same compact they've always had slightly lower rates for a while, authorizing class three gaming. If the legislature approves it at that point, they pay a higher rate overall. And so these four smaller tribes that I don't, I know the Oto Missouri and the Comanches don't have, their own reservation like their own territory and so any land they would build on would have to be land that they have purchased and you know could be land belonging to another tribe like the Chickasaws or somebody so the the federal government approved those compacts but the state court said they were null and void and now you've got a different federal judge saying no the previous compacts the original ones do auto renew and so i don't know if i'm an attorney i just would be licking my chops right now because i feel like there's a ton of stuff to to be hashed out and i just want someone to be like here is the status of everything like well it seems like to 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 kind of rehash it seems like the legislature all this happened, right? Governor Stitt said we want to renegotiate. The tribe said, "No, we're good, bro. They already re- they already renewed." So he went and entered these other compacts with the smaller tribes in an attempt to try and gain some leverage in his, his negotiations with the larger tribes. The legislature said, "No, you, you can't do that." And he was like, "Yes, I can." And they went to court and he lost there. Then the tribe sued and said, "Hey, these automatically renewed." And he said, "Oh, yes, no, they didn't." And he lost there. And so, um. He's 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 kind of I don't know I don't know what like where he goes from here because he's he's lost on all the avenues that he's tried to fight this battle. And yeah. here's the part for the taxpayer: there's been 1.5 million and counting invested in these fights that we're losing, and so right. it's costing like the attorney general's office and the executive branch budget, but it's also costing the taxpayers to go into these these. Yeah, because they fired outside counsel too, right? So like, um, it's cool, Bailey, though, because remember when he when he got elected, he sold the plane for a million bucks. So so uh, and, and that, yeah, so it was it was to do stuff like this, I guess. Right? Yeah, well, soft set. I will I will say I know um, 
you know, some of the conversation is kind of poo-pooed on the governor today, but I, his statement after this, um, was long, but I thought it was a really good statement. Um, I, and I, this is the kind of, uh, a rhetoric that I enjoy, I think, but he said this decision coupled with the recent U S Supreme court ruling on McGirt means Oklahomans have important questions to face regarding our future. Among other things, we will need to explore the challenges of who will pay taxes and who won't, of how we will guarantee a competitive marketplace, and of how the state will fund core public services into the next generation. Those are all true. He's trying to frame it in the in you know the context of these tr- gaming compacts, but those <laughs> those things we have to struggle with do exist. In short, we face a question of constitutional proportions about what it means to be the state of Oklahoma and how we regulate and oversee all business in our state. And so if he's drawn a connection between this and a you know bigger issue, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know he goes on to say, what I heard and what I learned is that only a few tribes were receiving most of the benefit from gaming, which is true. The five tribes, you know, I don't know the percentage where they make up a sizable proportion of all the gaming in the state. And that the one-size-fits-all approach to the model gaming compact was clearly broken. As your governor, I was driven by a conviction that we could look to the future and generate new, sustainable opportunities for the next generation of Oklahomans. Now, I think the thing that's interesting, and this has got lost in the recent lawsuits and conversation about this, is that the governor brought this up back in his State of the State address and really ruffled some people's feathers because he made the comment about Oklahoma's sovereignty, but did not address tribal sovereignty. Like just, he used the term sovereignty, which I think is a buzzword, right? Because we talk about it with tribal sovereignty because the state is not sovereign. We're one part of the United States, but the tribal, the tribes are sovereign nations. And by using that, uh, really kind of ruffled a lot of people's feathers, especially the tribes. And I think they took that as a sign, which was indeed true that, he was coming for him, right? Like he was going to challenge these things. But as you guys just said, the governor has been handed a number of losses on this issue. And I'm very curious to see what happens next. I got one more thing. Yeah. If you guys uh, are looking for something to do and uh, kill some brain cells during the pandemic, you should watch the magicians on Netflix. Uh, um, it is, let me emphasize this. This is not a kid friendly show. This is a grown up show. Uh, it is uh it's about a group of like college grad graduate school age kids who go to a school to learn magic. Um, it's kind of, it's got a lot of like Harry Potter in it. It's got also like a lot of Chronicles of Narnia in it, but with like a lot more cursing, a lot more drinking, a lot more drugs, and it's much darker than you either of those. <laughs> um, so uh, it's a it's a super dark magic fantasy show that takes place in the modern world and um i tried to make the case to ashley that it's critically acclaimed because it has really good reviews on rotten tomatoes and she said yeah it's critically acclaimed by people who watch shows about magicians um so 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 last week we ended with alien and this week we're ending with watch the netflix with magicians yeah you should watch the magicians on netflix because uh it's getting ready to be either either this is going to be their last season or they just wrapped their last season but there's six seasons about 12 13 episodes a season and you guys should watch nerd alert all right um damn straight (laughs) 
Bailey, before you joined the show many months ago, we had a really great episode where Scott discussed Lifetime movies. I'm going to go back and listen to that sometime. Yeah, I need to. As with everything, Scott, is a, his mind is a steel trap, and he retains the plot and, and action of each and every Lifetime movie that he's seen, which is if n- only. not insignificant. That's not indeed. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Listeners, Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you, Andy. Scott, thank you. I wouldn't miss it, man. I'll even skip the magicians to be here. Well, you'll just watch it later. That's how it works. Uh, listeners, please, if you enjoy this show, please tell your friends, rate, and subscribe. We've got big plans coming up as this fall progresses um, and we move on to um, really, you know, a lot of election coverage. And as a reminder, the Nondoc is hosting a, uh, a runoff debate in the uh, Oklahoma 5th District Republican primary. Uh, that will be Tuesday, August 18th at 515 at the Tower Theater. It'll be streamed on Facebook as well. Um, you can see the information about that on Nondoc. This is the debate between Terry Neese and Stephanie Bice. So if you live in the Oklahoma City area and you are uh, especially Republican, but really of any party affiliation, I encourage you to tune in to that uh, because one of those people will be on the ballot. And I will link to that in our show notes for this show. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey's at Bailey M. Perkins. And I, Andy, am at Andy OKC. You can like our Facebook page, share it with your friends. Our website is letsfixthisok.org. Please sign up for our newsletter, which I have not sent out in a while, and I'm going to start doing that uh, soon when we have more stuff to share, which will be very soon. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me. And Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network based right here in Oklahoma City. Our theme music is Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great one.